Hello, welcome to Dying to Talk. I'm Buddy Feneff, a fourth generation funeral director in New Hampshire and the owner of Feneff Funeral Homes and Crematorium and the founder of the Cremation Society of New Hampshire. My co-hosts today are Mandy Damaris and Madison Smith, both longtime funeral directors with our firm. Hello, I'm Mandy. Thanks for joining us on Dying to Talk. Hi, I'm Madison. We're excited to discuss some frequently asked questions about the funeral industry. Dying to Talk is a lighthearted and upbeat discussion of those topics no one really wants to talk about. Each episode, we will choose a subject that is related to funeral service, the cremation process, or death and dying. Today we have Leanne Tigert, who was with the Concord Regional Visiting Nurses Association, of course, in Concord. And Leanne is going to talk to us a little bit, um, or a lot of it, I should say, <laughs> uh, about hospice at home. So again, hospice organizations, but a little bit of a different level of care, different experience for the families, hospice in their own home versus hospice at a hospice house. So I don't have the number in front of me. We work with, of course, with a lot of the hospice houses here in New Hampshire. Um, but of people under hospice, I would think the, the lion's share of the people are actually choosing to pass away at home under hospice care versus a hospice house. A lot of it has to do with the capacity of the hospice houses. There's just not that many beds in the houses, so it ends up being a, a home. And I think people, you know, hopefully I would never have to experience this, but I think, I mean, hospice houses are great because they're, you know, they sort of bridge the gap between home death and a, and a nursing home or hospital, but being able to stay at home is a whole different level of I yeah, I agree. I think if you know being able to give your dying loved one the gift of being able to die at home, um, that's pretty special. If you're yes. able to do it, um, you know, it can be a beautiful it's thing. Tough in a it's tough because it's not intimate situation. Yeah, it's, it's not a you know, it's not a nine to five job. It's no, many no. families, it's it's twenty four seven and mm-hmm. multiple family members and mm-hmm. scheduling and coordinating. And again, mm-hmm. um, Leanne's going to talk to us about some of the challenges that that she experiences as a, one of the directors at Concord Regional Visiting Nurses. Good morning, Leanne, and welcome to Dying to Talk. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, so let's, I mean, the first question, how, how did you end up getting involved in hospice and hospice care? It's a, it's a long story, but I'll give you the short version. Um, I've always um, just appreciated the work of hospice. I've always thought it was uh, a pretty remarkable, um, for myself, coming out of a background of spiritual care, a pretty remarkable ministry, a pretty remarkable um, bringing together of different people to care for people at such a significant passage and significant time of life. Uh, I've always wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I had one parent who was in hospice care myself uh, and worked very closely with the hospice team there um, that wasn't in this state. And it, I, I saw from that side of it then how important um, the hospice team is. We, we see that a lot. I mean, it happens in funeral service. People that are, don't grow up in, in you know, the funeral business, a lot right. of people say, well, I had an experience with a, a death, and, and, I, yep. and I, you know, I, I love the caring and the compassion. Same thing with hospice. The mm-hmm. families, I've, I've spoken to a number of hospice nurses that have said, you know, we had a hospice experience, and it just changed my perspective, and I wanted to be able to give back and do that. So Absolutely. Yeah. What are... Um, the typical duties of a home hospice nurse. I mean, not not a hospice nurse that works in a hospice house, but right. one that actually goes to the home, a visiting right. nurse. Right. Well, um, let me just expand on that a little bit because the, there's the home nurse, but hospice works as a team, um, especially in the house, but especially in the home. So the visiting nurse, the hospice nurse is called the case manager. So she, you know, her, her goal is pain management and care for the patient, but she or he is always uh, in in uh, conversation with and working with a social worker, uh, a spiritual care counselor, 
a uh, perhaps a nurse practitioner as a provider or a medical doctor, um, sometimes LNAs, home health care. There's just a, a wide variety. So when you say home hospice service, the nurse is um, is kind of the captain in some ways mm-hmm. and uh, and the coordinator of all of that. But you're talking about an entire team of people. And, and family members are part of the team too, aren't they? Well, family members, yeah. we couldn't do it without family right. members. There's no way it couldn't happen. How long can, I, I know the answer to this, but I want to get your sure. perspective. How long can um, the family stay with the loved one at home after the individual has passed away? That's an interesting question. And I've actually never been asked that question before. Okay. Um, in my experience so far, it has varied. You would know the answer more to I that do. than I, I would, do. you know, in terms of the legalities right. of that. But I could tell you from experience with our hospice program, um, that has varied from, you know, an hour to three days. And that's, that's pretty much our experience as okay. well. Yeah. The Home Phenol Alliance, which is sort of a growing grassroots community of people that are doing, now the hospice often works with that team right. because you know these people are choosing to die at home, but they're also choosing to have their wake and visitation service at home. So right. those exactly. are situations where we had a, not too long ago where the hospice nurse, um, matter of fact, I think it was, it was one of the Concord nurses that actually went to the home and pronounced the person passed, and the family had a home wake, and they were there for probably close to three days mm-hmm. so I, you know I think it's interesting that you say that because it, to me it feels historically like a return to our roots of how we used to do this passage and how we used to do this time of life and this time of death um, when I think about people who when I say you know from from an hour to three days a lot of that is really dependent upon people's religious beliefs mm-hmm. uh, social customs a combination of factors around the family that um, that are just the ways that they commemorate, the way their culture culturally and religiously commemorate somebody. It's it's in it's it's the perspective I get from a lot of families. It's a continuity of care where they're you know the the family can still maintain control of the you know the hospice nurses working as you mentioned you know with the team effort with the family and the family can still maintain control until they're done. They don't need to mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. not that we're obtrusive as as field directors, but they they just like the fact that everything is done on their terms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. And taking a step back, how does someone become a hospice patient? How do they qualify for that? And what type of illnesses can you not handle at home? Okay. So those are a few different questions. Yes. Okay, just checking. I have a lot of curiosity over here. That's great. That's great. So let's let's go to the first question. How does somebody become a hospice patient? Um, Basically, anybody can call the hospice phone number and say, I would like information about this for myself or my loved one or whatever. But the way that they actually then become a patient and get on our services, they have to have a physician referral. uh, And then they have an assessment, a clinical assessment that is done. And the, the key question in terms of can someone be a hospice patient or not is, um, is this person, does this person have an illness from which he or she could die within the next six months? So that doesn't mean that they will die within six months. It doesn't mean that they will live for a full six months. Um, but they have to have, um, you know, what we call a terminal illness, an illness from which they could die within six months. It, it's interesting um, Certainly hospice isn't new, but right. to some extent, it's sort of new to New Hampshire. I have, a, I have a friend of mine who owns a very large funeral home out in Colorado, and they have an order of magnitude more families that are choosing hospice hmm. um, at, 
relative to dying in hospitals and nursing homes than New Hampshire does. And, and I don't want to say hospice is a new phenomenon, but we notice every year more and more people are, I mean, if you go back 10 years ago, I mean, we had such a smaller percentage yeah. of people that were involved with hospice mm-hmm. compared to, to, so why do you think that it was slower to sort of gain some traction, recognition in New Hampshire and really yeah. in New England than maybe in the West Coast or different parts of the country? Well, you know, I, I got my own theories about that, which I'm happy to share, but I'm, I'm also happy to hear you say that you're seeing more people with hospice. Yeah. I know that our census grows, you know, every week we are having more and more patients, which I think is terrific. Um, and I think it is about more people having more information and the ability to choose that. My own sense is that, you know, here in New Hampshire and in New England, we are all very close to extraordinary health care. I mean, we have so, I mean, the East Coast, on the whole East Coast, we have just phenomenal medical facilities that are available to us. And so for a long time, I think that medical care has been driven, um, in some sense, at end of life, it's been driven by all the things that we could do um, to extend life or to treat patients in a facility or whatever it might be. And hospice is an alternative to that. So, you know, maybe it's because we're surrounded by such extraordinary, wonderful health care um, that the, the, the alternative hasn't been quite as well known. I've also heard that it's not just educating the families on what hospice is, it's educating the physicians because ultimately a lot of, a lot of as you know, a lot of the hospice patients are referrals from, from, you know, from, from primary care physicians and doctors, and if doctors aren't talking about it, and I don't know, maybe it's because they feel as though you know, once they turn a patient over to hospice, it's, you know, it's, they've given up or whatever, or they lose control or... Um, so I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of different hospice organizations, and they say, you know, we, we spend a lot of time educating the doctors, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the, at the system level, you know, regardless of which hospital, sure. to what we do. And, and, and so do you, do you see that as well in terms of educating the doctors on, on hospice? Or? I, I think that's true to an extent. I, think, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Beyond uh, Being Mortal, not Beyond. It, yes. is, yeah, Being Mortal. No, I have not. Um, it's, uh, it's a book that we actually are doing a sort of an educational series in the community and, and libraries and also at Red River Theater in Concord. And um, it's a book written by a physician who basically talks about that uh, for so long, the medical profession and medical professionals themselves have been trained, you know, that, you know, you save life at all costs. And that's, you know, and, and, and that death is somehow a failure. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that death isn't a failure. Death is a passage. But in our culture, we're just, we're tuned into it to be like, you know, there's, he lost the battle, as they say. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something wrong. He went down with a good fight or whatever it was. And so I, I do think there is some education um, about physicians because they didn't get that education before about, you know, well, how do we help people live well until they die? It's not just about trying to defeat death and then losing. It's about living a high-quality life as long as someone is alive. And that's where hospice comes in, because our goal is not what people would call a good death. Our goal is really to help people have a really good life until the moment that they die. Hmm. Um, You had mentioned a few minutes ago that... um, one of the requirements for being becoming a hospice patient is that you would need to have a, an illness that you could die from within six months. Right. Is that kind of a, a time limit? I mean, what happens at six months good if question. you haven't passed away? Very good question. Uh, people do graduate from hospice in lots of different ways. Um, so what happens is that um, people have to, have to meet certain criteria of what we call evidence of decline. Uh, which is a, and there's physical standards um, and medical standards that Medicare has, has set forth. So 
Um, basically, every three months or every two months, depending on how long someone has been on service, they have to meet the criteria to continue to be on service. So it is true that we do discharge people. Uh, we call them like live discharges. Mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes people, it, actually I've seen it a lot. It's so interesting to me, especially people in homes. Um, I've seen that people get referred to hospice. They think they're at the end of life. The hospice team comes in. They get a lot of additional support, a lot of education about end of life, a lot of help, and they get better. Um, and so then they don't meet the criteria to be on hospice. And it's a really painful experience for the hospice team as well as for the family and patient to say, like, okay, now you're better. We have to leave. Mm -hmm. It could be like an emotional, emotional right. roller coaster for yeah. everybody. It is. In and out it, of hospice while well, yes, your, your disease right. progresses. But we do. If someone, if someone meets the criteria, theoretically, um, they could be on for years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but primarily, I think the average is, um, the average, unfortunately, I think is like two weeks that people are on mm -hmm. hospice. But in the homes, I think people are often on longer. So let's talk about cost a little bit. I'm, I'm quite familiar with the cost of running a hospice organization because I was, the, for many years, I was the chair of one of the other hospice associations <laughs> okay. that I won't mention, um, <laughs> but there's not a lot of competition you know, right. amongst yeah, that. Right. we work so together. We're, we're very together. cooperative. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how do people pay for it? And if you know, if, is is it you know private pay versus Medicaid? Do people is there different levels of care? If someone could do a private pay versus a not pay, how does how does the funding and, and how do people pay for hospice basically? It's like everything else in medicine. It's a little complicated at mm -hmm. first, um, but you know, primarily it's uh, it's paid for by Medicare. So it's actually a wonderful benefit. I tell people all the time, you know, you've been paying into the system for decades, and, like, that's paying your insurance, and now you're getting some benefits. So Medicare uh, pays almost all of the costs related to hospice for, for most people um, if they fit, if they're eligible for Medicare, obviously. We also do accept um, other insurances as well as some people are private pay. So mm -hmm. it's a combination of things. And there are levels of care... Um, not so much in the home, mostly in the hospice house or in nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities, but there are different levels of care, and so the hospice team um, helps the um, helps the patient and their family kind of figure out exactly where they are with that. Now, Concord also is one of the few um, VNAs hospice organizations in the state that does also have the benefit of having a hospice house. Correct. As well, how many beds do you have in, in your hospice? We have ten beds. Ten beds. Right. Okay. And so just to give you a perspective on that, we have 10 beds that are usually full, um, but we have anywhere from 120 to 135 people in the community as well. To your census. So do you see people shifting from maybe a um, hospice at home and then the family can't maintain that, you know, 24-7 care, even though hospice is coming um, right, and right. moving to a hospice or the other way around at a hospice house and then the end is maybe getting a little closer and they want to be able to... Pass, absolutely. Pass absolutely. in a more, more comfortable environment. So sure. you have you see people moving in both both directions? We do see people moving in both directions uh, a lot. And it just depends on what the what the patient need and what their goal is and what their desire is. Mm -hmm. So we, we are flexible with, with the them. Family you know. and, right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people have respite care. So people are at home, for example, and they have 24-7 care by their family. And say some, you know, a family member wants to take a weekend off. Uh, and there's no one to take care of, of the patient. So sometimes the patient will come into the hospice house just for respite care uh, so that the family can leave and relax and know they're well cared for. They'll come into the hospice house for symptom stabilization, symptom management, to get them stable and then to go back home if they want to. And sometimes they'll come into the hospice house for end-of-life care because they just can't be managed at home. 
Again, I, I'm so curious. I I have a cat. And I, I'm we sure do cats. <laughs> we <laughs> okay, no, we should do pet. Ho- there are pet hospices, but we're not. There are no, no. really pet hospices. Oh, there are. There oh, wow. Are. Oh, well, that's not my question. Okay, <laughs> so, that's a whole other show. Once again. So people who have cats or dogs, and and they um, they experience when they're ill, you know, the, the the animal is more attentive. Do you find, or you have experiences with cats or dogs that are more protective of their loved ones when when the hospice nurses are caring for them? Um, we, we do, you know, it's, it's so, I, I love going into people's homes to care for people. Um, that's just one of the, one of the things I've loved about my time at the hospice program. And, um, you find that pets are really in tune with their owners, mm-hmm. really in tune. So whether it's a cat or a dog or, uh, horses, we actually had some horses brought to the hospice house oh one time. Goodness. Inside? No, they're out in the parking lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the door's not that big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we have volunteers who have, um, uh, we have like pet therapists as volunteers. We have mm-hmm. a large pool of volunteers who go into people's homes as well. But um, yes, yeah, sure. Sometimes cats are very protective. Dogs are very protective. Um, they're usually very friendly and welcoming, and they're just part mm-hmm. of the family. So sure. we just take our cues from them, like we do with the human family. Mm-hmm. Madison has tortoises. I'd be uh, <laughs> excited to see how how emotive they are. <laughs> what is it under hospice? Imagine a hospice. You have to be there for seven and a half years under tortoise <laughs> hospice care because they live so long. Years, yes. <laughs> Why don't you talk a little bit about your Dying to Talk Cafe? Sure. Well, it, it actually started um, in Concord about a year and a half ago. Um, it's part of a larger international movement called the Death Cafe Movement. Um, and you can, if you like Google Death Cafe, you'll see all over Europe, you'll see all over the United States, you'll see, you'll see all kinds of places where people are gathering in what's called death cafes. And the, the emphasis on Dying to Talk, uh, the Dying to Talk Cafe, is that it's an informal time, facilitated conversation, but informal time, for people to come together, um, literally around coffee and, and cookies, uh, to talk about issues of living and dying. Uh, to talk about all the things that have been taboo. Where do you talk about you know, how do I have the conversation about how I want to be treated at the end of life? Where, where can I talk about, you know, well, what do I want? Do I want to be buried? Do I want to be cremated? Do I want this? Do I want that? I'm worried about my kid. I'm worried about this. How do I tell somebody that, no, I don't want to be put on a ventilator, and do I have options for that? Are these, the, the, your, your attendees, I'm assuming it's facilitated by someone at yeah, uh, it DNA. is. It is. And yep. what's your, what's your, I mean, the people that have experienced a loss, you know, with a family member through hospice, the people that have recently found out that they had a, um, a life-threatening illness, what's, what's the audience sort of? This is like a support sort of? group type thing. It's not it? a support group. It's not an education group. It's, um, it's really an informal conversation group. So what happens is that, um, well, we meet in, in Concord. We meet at the Gibson's uh, bookstore at the True Brew uh, coffee shop there, and um, I facilitated a number of them. And so, my sense is that the, the the group of people changes. We do have people who are invested in the sense that we do often have people who have a diagnosis, um, or people who are in relationship with someone who has a terminal diagnosis. Um, for people for whom um, they, you know, they they. Something has propelled them, I think, beyond the average person. So and they're to speak. looking for actual questions to their real. Uh, 
I well, they're they're looking questions. for answers, but they're they're also they're looking for resources, but they're also really looking for a chance to have a conversation, mm -hmm. because it, it's hard to literally strike up a conversation with someone um, about you know what am I thinking about about how I want to be treated at the end of my life. Mm -hmm. You know, we we in our culture we just we try to pretend it doesn't exist. We try to not make decisions. And what I keep saying to people is, the more that you act like uh, this isn't an issue, the more it's going to be an issue. In our experience, people that have ex had experienced hospice have said, oh my God, it was a wonderful experience, and you know, there are ways to give back. We always say, well, you could become a, a hospice volunteer. So um, I know Concord has a great um, volunteer infrastructure. What If someone is interested in volunteering at hospice through Concord Regional Visiting Nurse, who do they contact? What do they do? Is there a website? The only there, yes, to all the above. Okay, we have a great volunteer group. They're remarkable people, um, and I think they really feel fulfilled and they enjoy their work and feel really supported by the VNA. Um, they all they have to do is call the VNA or call the hospice house. Um, they could call our number in Concord two two four four zero nine three and just say I'm interested in, in learning about volunteers for hospice, and they'll be guided to the right person. Um, also, we do have a lot of information on our website, the CRVNA website. Um, so we would CRVNA.org? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you for joining us on another informative episode of Dying to Talk. I definitely learned a lot. If our listeners have any questions about funerals or cremations, either in New Hampshire or Vermont, I'm happy to answer them. Just email me at buddy at finef.net. That's buddy at P-H-A-N-E-U-F.net. Or call me on my direct line at 603 625 5778. Our contact information is in the show notes of this episode too.